The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you please, please remain standing and uh, turn your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 6. There's a few changes tonight in terms of the uh, uh, sermon text. We're just looking at verse 17 tonight. Just verse 17, but I think I'll read from verse 10 through to verse 20. Our text, again, will be verse 17. So let's read the whole context, Ephesians 6, verse 10 through to verse 20. Let's hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and also for me that the words that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Indeed, now, Lord God, we do make supplication for the preaching of your word, that words may be given to me and ears might be given to all of us to hear what your spirit has to say. Lord, we confess in this moment our need upon you is absolute. Give us your spirit, Lord, that we might conform our wandering minds to your worship. Give us your spirit that we might hear with the hearing of faith, that we might bring praise and honor and glory to you. Without you, we can do nothing. And so we rest upon you, you who are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned, a slight change to the uh, stated text before us, and indeed, uh, as we're cutting out verse 18 from the sermon tonight, only a two-point sermon, the helmet of salvation and then the sword of the Spirit. We really come to the concluding two elements of the armor that God has given us. Verse 18 is big enough to treat it on its own. The environment 
of us utilizing this armor of God is an environment of prayer. You see, we're not just called to commune, we're not just called rather to put on the armor that God has given us in in some sort of distant relationship to God. We're called also to commune with him in prayer. Pastor Rockham will deal with that next week, Lord willing. But we have these last two elements of the armor of God. God gives them to us because he loves us. God gives us this armor and he gives us of himself. That's what we've been driving home in the last few weeks. The armor of God is God giving of himself unto us. This armor once again speaks of his character, his attributes, and his work in us and for us. Moreover, it speaks to us of Christ, the great Messiah, the anointed one of God, who himself, Scripture teaches, utilizes these very uh, items of armor in order to carry out his work as Messiah. We're reminded again, utilizing these pieces of divine armor should cause us to stand and withstand the attacks of Satan. Friends, we're to be refreshed tonight. I hope we've been refreshed in recent weeks, refreshed and strengthened, because we're reminded once again the power available to us is not mere human power, it is divine power. And it's a power that is greater than the power which Satan possesses. And that power comes to us tonight in two ways. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. That's what I hope to see. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Let's look first of all at the helmet of salvation. As I've mentioned, each time we consider an item of armor, we are considering an item of divine armor, divine character, divine attribute, divine work. In other words, Christian, as we read this passage over and over and over again, we are called to clothe ourselves in almighty character, almighty power, and almighty work. Indeed, we're called to clothe ourselves with messianic power, the power of Christ himself operative in our lives. We're called to enter then into a protection a power, a wisdom, a discernment far beyond that which we possess. We're talking about supernatural powers available to us and in us, and that should be really comforting and strengthening to each one of you Christians here this night. You see, it's not our meager powers and abilities that are on display here, but it's almighty. And there is nothing greater than almighty and perfect character which is available to us. That's very clearly seen, I believe, in the helmet of salvation. Salvation is that which we are to clothe ourselves this night. And biblical salvation tells us much about God. Jonah's statement after he had learned his lesson was this, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a very clear reminder that from first to last and everything in between with respect to salvation comes to us from God. It is of God. He is the author, the engineer, the applier, the gifter. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We can say that salvation was conceived in the mind of the triune God. Salvation was enacted, is enacted by the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit working together and distinctly to bring about salvation. We can also say the ends of salvation are divine. To use the language of the Apostle Peter, salvation brings about in us, it makes us partakers of the divine nature. Yes, the ends of salvation are divine. We have to say biblical salvation, not man-made salvation, but biblical salvation is thoroughly divine. It's thoroughly God-centered. It tells us much about God himself. And so what Paul is telling us to put on here is something about God. Utilize the power and the graces of God. That's what he's telling us. More than that, as we've seen in previous weeks, Paul is also telling us to utilize messianic rule and reign and character. You see, this piece of armor, the helmet of salvation, is expressly mentioned in the ministry of the servant of the Lord in the ministry of Messiah. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 17, we read this, and think of the the parallels here. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The servant of the Lord, God himself, put on a helmet of salvation on his head. And the context of Isaiah 59:17 is very important to us. Why is God, why is the Messiah spoken of here as putting on armor? Now, to be sure, for Christ, the armor is just a picture. It's just a picture of messianic power, of reign, of rule, of authority, that which he will do. Christ doesn't literally put on a helmet. It's a picture of his reign and rule. Why, though, is that necessary? Well, a few verses back tells us why. We read this verse 14. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. That's the state of the covenant people during the day of Isaiah. That's what's going on in the midst of God's people. Rank wickedness, injustice. And the picture here in Isaiah 59 is of God looking down on this and being greatly dissatisfied by it. Enraged, we could even say, without sin. The Lord saw it, verse 15, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Moreover, the Lord looks down again and sees no man who can intercede for the people. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. 
There's no one standing up, no one in place to deal with the sins of the people. And so what does he do? He says, I'll do it myself. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head. His, he put garments of vengeance on for clothing. He wrapped himself in a zeal as a cloak. To do what? To bring judgment and salvation. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. There it is, Christ coming to bring justice. But not just justice, salvation. Salvation, we read on, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression says the Lord. Salvation comes with the Messiah. He wears a helmet of salvation, a picture of what he is capable of doing, a picture of what he is doing. Do we see what's being said here, friends? The language is clearly, Paul is clearly taking the language of the old covenant prophecy the weapons and armor mentioned here in Isaiah picture the capacities and the attributes of Messiah himself. And the Spirit is saying to us this night, the character and attributes of Messiah as he comes in salvation are available to us on a daily basis. Make use of them. Make use of them. They're there for us. Put on, he says, the helmet of salvation. Take it. Utilize it. Where does it come from? It comes from Christ himself, the Messiah, anointed one of God, who came to bring salvation. Utilize that helmet of salvation. What does it mean, though, to utilize the helmet of salvation? You know, Paul will write this at the back end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, a parallel passage to our text in Ephesians. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. William Hendrickson writes that our salvation is a present reality and a future hope. You'll often hear Pastor Rocken using the terminology the already and the not yet. Already, not yet. We already have salvation, do we not? We already are saved. But is that salvation complete and final and consummated? No, we wait for the new heavens and new earth for it. Though we possess it now, we are waiting for its completion. Salvation is a present reality that we possess. But we await its completion, the not yet. It's a present reality. Christian, are you saved? Yes, 
Yes, that's a present reality. In fact, we're no less saved on the last day and in eternity than we are now, actually. Though it's not yet fully fulfilled, we are saved. We are cleansed. We are made righteous. We are made the children of God. God gives us grace to persevere. And yet there is a future hope in salvation, is there not? The helmet of the hope of salvation. What is our greatest hope? That ultimately we will be with the Lord. And that's our greatest hope because we have a great enemy, Satan. In fact, our enemy is threefold, is it not? The world outside us, full of temptation. The world inside us, the flesh. And who? The devil. And with Satan goes that great and last enemy, death. And yet as we read Scripture and as we think of our Christian hope, we do not think of death. And we do not speak of death. As terrible as it is, we do not speak of it in the same way as the world speaks of it. We do not mourn as those without hope. The helmet of salvation and of hope. You see, this is the present reality. Yes, we will die. We're still saved. And our future hope is that we will be raised eternally. In fact, that's our certainty. You see, this is all bound up in the helmet of salvation. Look where that piece of armor is placed upon our bodies. It's placed upon our head. It's a helmet. Paul is saying the doctrines of salvation in their plurality, from election all the way through to glorification and everything between it, the doctrines of salvation are a protector to our mind, a defense to our mind, a defense, if you will, to our heart, that place where we think. That is to say, friends, your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be a ministry to your own mind, to your own thinking, how you think, what you conclude about circumstances of life. Because we do not conclude that God's favor is upon us by measuring our circumstances around us. I'll say that again. We do not conclude that God's favor is on us or not by looking at the circumstances around us. And we may not conclude, even if we're faced by a long and painful death, that salvation in Christ has suddenly become of no effect. We simply don't use those uh, metrics to measure the goodness of God in salvation. You see, free and gracious salvation, which is sovereign, tells us the opposite often to our circumstances. Salvation that is of the Lord, we learn in Scripture, started in eternity past with the will of God and the decree of election. Salvation that is of the Lord is the giving of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the individual in the doctrines of regeneration, being born again, where our old heart is taken away and we're given a new heart that embraces and turns to God. 
Salvation that is of the Lord grants us faith and repentance in the Savior, and thereby unites us to Him. Salvation that is from the Lord freely justifies us by His grace. Salvation that is of the Lord sanctifies us and keeps us and preserves us, even to the point of our death and beyond the resurrection into life. Salvation that is of the Lord is, dear friends, an eternal salvation. Friends, this is the ministry of salvation in your life. How should being saved minister to you? We don't in Scripture, nor frankly in this church, have that superficial idea of just getting saved. It's not just about getting saved. We've seen many times over, and we only scratch the surface, the length and breadth, the height and depth of biblical salvation. This is to be a ministry in your own life. You are to minister it to yourself. That God has involved you in a most remarkable fashion with a salvation which is free and gracious and complete and perfect and cannot be undone by any power that ever existed. It simply can't be undone. For what God has done, no one on earth, nor in the heavens as it were, Satan, can undo. Do you see what Paul is saying? Allow this truth to saturate your minds. On a warm Sunday night in this room, allow it to address your hearts and daily meditate upon this salvation. Just perfect, complete, free, and gracious. It is, remember of all times, a sovereign act of the sovereign God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and nothing can change that reality. Don't believe the lies of Satan with respect to anything pertaining to your salvation. Believe the sovereign God. Believe his word, the word of God, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's our second consideration this evening, the word of God, which is here likened to the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. There's an old saying in rugby, defense wins games. Defense wins games. Now, it's only partially true because you're not going to just win a game of rugby by defending all the time. You have to actually be offensive. You have to attack. And we've seen thus far that all the elements of the armor of God are defensive, things which protect us. But here we're called to be on the attack. We're called to be on the attack. William Hendrickson, again commenting on this passage, asked the question of his reader, have you learned the art of offensive warfare? Have you learned the art of offensive warfare? The word of God here is likened to a sword, the sword of the Spirit. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? 
What does it mean, the sword of the Spirit? Is the word the sword given by the Spirit? Or is the word of God uh, a sword in the hands of the Holy Spirit? I think both. Most certainly the word of God comes from the Spirit, inspired by him. That's without doubt true. But it's also most certainly true that part of the Spirit's work is the writing of the word in our hearts, applying it to our souls, sanctifying us, saving us even. The question is this, how is the Spirit and the Word, or how are the Spirit and the Word related? What qualities do we find of the Word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit? What qualities in Scripture do we find of the Word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit? Well, Scripture is not short in testifying of itself, of its own power. It's not just of its own power like that, but in the hands of the Spirit. There are far too many texts to to justify and fully state this position. But I'll I'll raise just a few. Take 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, where we learn in a quote from Isaiah 40 that the Word of God remains forever. It's an eternal Word. It's unmovable, immovable, and unshakable truth. The Word of God, then, is the measure of all things. And it is this way because it's the Word of God, and God is this way. So God's word is as God is. But Peter goes on in 1 Peter 1.25 and tells us not just that that word remains forever, but he stipulates precisely what that word is. He continues and says, and this word is the good news preached to you. It's the gospel. Now, Peter's not saying anything about the rest of Scripture. It's all the Word of God, but he particularly wanted to focus upon the gospel, the unshakable, indisputable truth of salvation, the unshakable, indisputable truth about who Jesus Christ is. And the Word in the hands of the Spirit is like nothing else we can conceive of. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 speaks in this manner. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can see that the passage there moves from the Word of God to the God of the Word. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and no creature is hidden from his sight, God's sight. It's just what we were saying, the Word of God is this way because God is this way. Friends, what we're being taught here is that the Word in the hands of the Spirit is spiritually incisive. That is to say, friends, if we can speak this way, it works at the molecular level 
of the human soul and spirit. The word works at the molecular level of the human soul and spirit, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, revealing, as one commentator speaks, of the sin and the guilt and the shame that is found in those without God, but at the same time ministering healing and salvation and redemption to that very same guilt and shame and sin. See, it's the Word in the hands of the Spirit that saves people. Of course, it's Christ that saves, but it's the message of Christ that we receive, Romans 10, 14. People are saved because they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they put their faith in him, not in the word. Time doesn't allow us to speak of the word being a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, to being life, to being freedom, and many more things. We could spend all night talking about what scripture says about itself in the hands of the Spirit the life-giving power of the Word of God. And of course, that concept of the Word and its life-giving power is fulfilled in our Lord Himself. He is the Word, the Word incarnate. What does that mean? It means that all the promises and covenants and blessings of all of Scripture cohere and converge upon Him. He is the fulfillment of them. All the promises of God have their yes and amen in Christ. But it also means that He is the very express image of conformity to the will of God. If you want to know what to believe and how to behave, look to Jesus the Word. He's the perfect image of what it is to be a Christian. And it's in Christ that all the purposes of God in salvation come to pass. He who possessed the fullness of the Spirit, he has given us himself, he has given us his word, he has given us the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. How is that then useful to us? This is application, really, isn't it? How is the word in our hands an offensive weapon? Well, we'll see this in several ways. First, we must, as Christians, know the word. We must know the word. And we must know it as the living and active word of God. And friends, that requires effort in your life. Children, let me address you. One of the most precious and powerful and just simply the greatest thing you could be doing right now in the days of your youth is to be memorizing Scripture. Hide the Word in your heart. Hide the Word in your heart. And frankly, it doesn't matter how old you are. Hide the Word in your heart. It requires discipline. It requires discipling. Parents, it is your great duty not only to hide the word in your heart, but in the heart of your children. Teach them to love the law of God. It goes for all of us. Know the word. 
But don't stop at knowing the word. Secondly, believe the word. Christianity that is solely intellectual is not Christianity. Let's be clear on that. Scripture doesn't recognize those who simply have an intellectual understanding of Scripture. In fact, those who exhibited greatest knowledge in Scripture, often they were called hypocrites. Now, where to believe the Word? Where to believe Scripture? Because Scripture is not, in a sense, it's not Scripture which saves us. It's, it's the one of whom Scripture speaks. Believe the Word believe Christ. Believe the Word of God. Believe its promises. Believe its teachings. Believe its assurances. Friends, believe its warnings. Believe its warnings, all of which are to be used to the profit of the Christian, all of which are to be used as a means of standing fast and withstanding Satan. Know the Word. Believe the Word. Thirdly, Live the word. The obedience of faith, as Paul calls it. Though imperfect our obedience, it is greatly pleasing to God when we strive to obey him by faith. And not only is it greatly pleasing to God, it is profoundly edifying to the Christian to live by faith in obedience. Living by obedience is standing fast, present tense. We've got all these statements about standing fast. That's what it is. Living by faith and obeying God, that is standing fast, withstanding Satan. You see, the word to us is an offensive weapon thwarting the attacks of Satan. How? Because the word reminds us of fundamental truths. Fundamental truths which are summarily dismissed by the society in which we live. Young people growing up, going on into college and beyond, think on this well. The world in which you live is not the same world as your parents or grandparents lived in. It's changed and not for the better. The dangers to you are perhaps greater than they were for your parents and grandparents. The world has changed. But the word teaches you the truth. It teaches you about our sinful condition, not what the world says about ourselves. The Word teaches us, moreover, about the way of salvation, the only way of salvation, not as the world tells us there are many ways to happiness. The Word teaches us truth, truth that sets us free from the folly and lies of the world and of Satan. To know the truth, dear friends, is not to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine in the church or out of the church. You see, friends, what we have here is the living word. It is the word of the living and true God. As you know this word, you will be able to withstand Satan. As you know this word, believe this word, and obey this word, you will be actively standing against Satan. That's precisely how you will disarm Satan. 
Remember Christ, Colossians 2, he has disarmed Satan. He has disarmed principalities and powers. And now he calls you into that same work, not in precisely the same way as he does, but in your daily experience as an individual Christian or as a husband, as a wife, a parent, a child, a single person in your workplaces, in your families, in your neighborhoods. We're called to utilize the word to tear down, to tear down the, the, the temples and idols that are all around us in this life. We're not just called to be passive and hope that the armor that God has given us will, will defend us. We are to go on the offensive. It is the word of God that will equip you to do such. Pastor Rockham will come to prayer next week, praying at all times in the Spirit. It's not named as a piece of armor, but frankly, it is. The armor of God is complete. We spent three to four weeks considering these matters. Friends, we've been called over and over and over again to remember that when you feel like you're reaching the end of your tether, you feel like you're reaching the end of your spiritual resources when you feel powerless and weak or helpless, fraught by various trials or temptations. God has given you no ordinary armor. He's given you himself. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Think on that for a moment. He made heaven, he made earth, he made Satan. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our armor, which we are to utilize daily, is simply living in communion with God, knowing who God is, knowing who his son, the Messiah, is, seeking their strength, their wisdom, their righteousness, their discernment, their salvation. Friends, what more can you ask for? God has given you himself. God has given you his son, the Messiah. And that's enough for each and every one of us here tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for there is no lack of generosity in you no lack of kindness, no jealousy to keep that which is yours unto yourself, because you have given us yourself in your Son and through your Spirit. Lord, equip, equip each one of us here this night to a greater understanding of what it is to be a child of yours. And so, Lord, let us honor you in thought and word and deed, that we, your people, might stand firm, giving you all the glory, seeking that better country which is above. Bless us with faith. Bless us with trust. And may we reside under the banner of King Jesus, 
who has subdued us to himself, is ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. It's in his name we pray. Amen.